Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. For those of you just waking up this morning, well, I hope you've survived your Christmas party and are not feeling too rough for wear. And for all the bright sparks who are already up and running about the place, well, why don't you sit back, put the kettle on, have a nice hot coffee and join me and Deirdre as we talk about our new book, The Winter Gathering. OK, at this point in the interview, Deirdre and I spoke about the character of Chloe, Maggie's sister. Chloe's relationship with Maggie is hugely complex. It's very fraught at times, highly intense and emotional. Yet there is a deep understanding between these two very different sisters. Deirdre gave me a background to Chloe's life and the challenges she faces. Chloe is actually resident most of the time in this Elysian place that I created for her. It's a really beautiful and very well run and compassionate residence for people like her who are moderately mentally ill. And uh, but she can act up and she can be pretty difficult. So it's around it's on Stephen's Day. Maggie has come to visit her and Chloe has this thing where she, she resents it. She, she kind of where were you on Christmas Day sort of thing, although she's much happier where she was. I don't respond. I don't even look at her. It took a long time, but I've learned the hard way that outraged reactions, appeals, even threats have no effect on Chloe when she behaves like this. I'm convinced this overt truculence has something to do with the side effects of one, maybe even more than one, of her medications, which are under constant review. As a result, these outbursts are now rare, thank God, and getting rarer. She's miffed about something. Probably nothing to do with me. She'll calm down in her own time. She'll apologise. I'll accept her apology. We'll move on. Sorry, Chloe. I say to her now, I've left Flora in the car and I'm worried. I've left the driver's window open and she could get out. Anyhow, the seat would be drenched. Take your time getting dressed. I'll be back in a sec. She ignores me and I leave the room quietly. I'll go back in about ten minutes and everything should be fine. Neither of us will refer to it. When she was living with us, this used to happen more than it does now. I used to react and we'd have a ding-dong that left both of us worn out. Bit by bit, though, I came to accept that, other than her psychiatrist, I'm probably the only person on whom she feels she can safely vent her frustrations so I don't take it personally. A big ask, one that proved impossible for Derek to deal with. He, of course, didn't leave until he was sure there was a young and compliant party to take him in. Sorry, Chloe's not the only one whose bitchiness breaks out now and then. I didn't really mean that. Not now, it's just habit. Once outside and walking back to the car, I look back at her window. Sometimes, after such an eruption, she'll repent immediately and I'll see her waving. But not today. You might think there's an element of manipulation here, that my sister is cunning enough to control her reactions with those whom it's necessary to keep on side. Even if that is the case, so what? All it means is that she's learned how to survive in her own world. The way I look at it is the old way. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, etc., Except for that one Christmas day ten years ago when she didn't stop at words. And that's a long, long time ago. The aspect of her behaviour I have most worried about is her impulsivity. She can be going along as normal and then wham! She says or does something completely unexpected, occasionally even dangerous. Like the time she ran out into the road to stand in front of an oncoming motorhome. She came to no harm. The driver, a German woman, managed to break in time, but when asked afterwards to explain why she'd done it, Chloe could give no satisfactory reply. I just wanted to. She shrugged. I thought the caravan was cool. The medication seems to have ironed that sort of stuff out, but the poor Frau was pretty shaken. But why would she do that? She asked me over and over again. I've thought about the woman often, strangely. I guess she had some stories about the Irish to tell at her Hamburg dinner parties. Although Mary still asks after Chloe's welfare... 
Even she no longer brings her up when all five of us are together. I don't put that down to what they witnessed that Christmas day in my house, although there may be an element of that. I think they don't bring up the subject of her illness because of simple bafflement, and I understand that from the bottom of my heart. She's not Down syndrome or suffering from something like autism, about which there have been heart-rending and explanatory documentaries. She's educated to Leaving Cert standard. She can read and write. So why wouldn't she get a desk job somewhere as a file clerk? She's able-bodied. So why can't she get out of the house and stack shelves in Tesco? God, Deirdre, the misconceptions of what mental illness is, is so wonderfully highlighted there. Do you think we're compassionate enough as a society with how we deal with friends and family, our work colleagues that have experienced mental health challenges, whether it's an ongoing mental health condition or if it's, a, you know, an episode? Do you think we do enough? Do you think we actually care enough and do you think we actually are informed enough to know how we should support? Um, The information that we have about mental illness is scant, really, because there are so many manifestations of it and it is individual to each individual person. It really is. What is an ongoing difficulty, I would think, in society is there is very little difference in general society between mental illness and mental disability. They're both lumped in together. But mental disability is something that you're probably born with. You're a Down syndrome sufferer, autism, uh, cerebral palsy, now just physical as well. But when you get to mental illness, that is the brain gone awry. The brain and the mind being sick. Mental illness. And it's very, very difficult, I think, for friends to comprehend the difference. And also, I would think that there is a boredom factor if somebody's mental illness is not improving. Like, why isn't it improving if it's only mental illness? Physical illness improves. People get better, people die. Mental illness can be a life sentence for somebody. So it's just an enduring, ongoing battle, I suppose. Yeah, unless it's somebody who has a very severe mental illness, like um, paranoid schizophrenia or something like that, where there are episodes which are really dramatic. Friends can rally around, but what can they do except say it's awful? What could they actually do? They can do nothing unless they can and I think people do, they do kind of try and come up with solutions like why don't they get a job jobs in Tesco, they're able-bodied. They don't need to be in the full of their mental health to stack shelves in Tesco. But allied to a lot of mental illness is this stigma, which is a self-induced stigma. I don't think society any longer, in general, there are pockets of it, stigmatise mental illness the, the way it used to be in Ireland. But if you remember, in Ireland when I was growing up, every family had an odd uncle or an odd aunt and they were cared for in the home. They sat in a corner. I have mental pictures of people who were wreathed in shawls in the corner beside a fire. They were minded, they were given cups of tea, they were given shelter and the whole community just accepted you know, that so-and-so who's odd. I don't think that's accepted anymore. People have to be therapised and medicated and fulfil their potential. And yes, they do. But the tolerance of it is not there much anymore. There's an awful lot of why can't they? And somebody like Maggie, who has a, a sister with an ongoing situation like that. Now, she's lucky she's in a beautiful residential place, but there are people who aren't. And the friends of the carer would be a mother, a brother, a sister. The friends of the carer quite predictably and understandably get bored asking, like, 
how's Breed or how's Susan? And the person can only say, well, there's no change. And you have to move on because they've discussed it over and over again at the beginning. And for Chloe, all Chloe has really in the world is Maggie. And that becomes so clear throughout the book. Maggie is Chloe's life. And really, at the end of the day, Chloe centres Maggie's life. Yes, I mean, Chloe is a kind of a background hum to Maggie's life. She's no longer, hopefully, is no longer, you know, a big crisis in Maggie's life because she's being cared for in this place. But what is the crisis in Maggie's life is what happens when Maggie, if Maggie predeceases her? I mean, a number of my friends are in this situation and it is their ongoing worry at night when they go to sleep. It's the first thing they think of when they wake up. What's going to happen to X after I die? And, or if I die before him or her? So, there's nobody who can help with that except the state, really, unless somebody's extremely rich. I mean, money can help with these situations. Nice places can be found for people in that situation, like, you know, they, like in my book. But I suspect, and I have been told this, and I was doing a bit of research, that a lot of the people you see around this area, around Newstalk, who are sitting on pavements holding out cups, a lot of those are suffering from mental illness and there's nowhere for them to take them in. They're psychiatric hospitals, they're called now. They're moving to, quotes, care in the community. But the care in the community they have is people dropping coins into cups and trying to find hostels at night or sleeping rough. So I feel very strongly about that. I think that um, there is a big educational thing to be done amongst the general public, but also people have to accept that the money that is ring-fenced for mental health improvements and issues should actually be spent on mental health and situations like that, instead of going into the general maw of the health service. Well, you're my friend And can you see Many times we've been out drinking Many times we shared our thoughts But did you ever, ever notice The kind of thoughts I got Well, you know I have a love, a love for everyone I know. And you know I have a drive to live, I won't let go. But can you see its opposition? Comes rising up sometimes That it's dreadful And position Comes blacking in my mind And that I see a darkness And that I see a darkness And that I see a darkness and that I see your darkness Did you know how much I love you? Here's a hope that somehow you Can save me from this darkness 
Well, I hope that someday, buddy, we have peace in our lives, together or apart, alone or with our wives, and we can stop our whoring and pull the smiles inside and light it up forever and never go to sleep. My best unbeaten brother, this isn't all I see. Oh, no, I see a darkness. Oh, no, I see a darkness. No, I see a darkness. Oh, no, I see a darkness. Did you know how much I love you? Here's a hope that somehow you can save me from this darkness. And I'm sure you recognised the very unique Johnny Cash singing I See a Darkness. Coming up next, Deirdre and I are going to look at the challenging and not often straightforward issue of forgiveness in relationships, highlighted in her new book, The Winter Gathering. Talking Books on News 106 to 108.